But I got to say, the kind of gathering that I'm trying to do now, mm-hmm. for the most part, has been, let's say, off-the-record conversations uh-huh. with people who are working professionally in the psychedelic space, yep. who are activists doing policy, yeah. they're involved in the BC side, you know, the whole range, mm-hmm. right? And, you know, I talked to a good number of shamans and mushroom dealers, right? Yeah. And so, like, what's going on? Oh, right? you got the full spectrum. You got it. <laughs> yeah, the only way to understand this is yeah. to try to embrace as much as you can in mm-hmm. terms of the, the range of what's happening, because yeah. it's all part of the same narrative. It's all story. Welcome back to the Trip Report podcast, production of Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. Today, I'm speaking with Ken Jordan, co-founder and editorial director of Lucid News, an AP-style journalistic platform covering all aspects of the psychedelic field. Ken is a longtime journalist, writer, and media entrepreneur. In 2007, Ken co-founded the Evolver and Reality Sandwich digital media platforms dedicated to the emerging consciousness movement. And in 2020, he and his co-founder and journalist, Ann Harrison, founded Lucid News to cover the psychedelics specifically. My goal for this conversation was to try and get a snapshot of the moment, as difficult as that may be, with the help of someone who has been in the weeds as much as I have for the last four years. Like other guests on the trip report, Ken and I regularly connect to swap ideas, share insights, and discuss the evolution of the psychedelic movement. A theme of this conversation is the growing pains the field is undergoing, and the challenges of macroeconomic headwinds, the relatively slow progress of policy reform and clinical trials compared to the amount of hype and optimism 18 or 24 months ago. In this conversation, we discuss the early days of the psychedelic sector, Ken's perspective as a longtime media entrepreneur with an interest and focus on psychedelics and consciousness, the major inflection point that was the MAPS Psychedelic Science Conference 2023, The wild idea, as Ken says, that money right now is in the really active gray market that's making chocolates that you can buy in every cannabis bodega in New York. Ken's optimism about the authorities' loosening of concern about psychedelics. The lack of organized opposition against decriminalization and legalization efforts. The key difference between the psychedelic renaissance of the 1960s and today's is the former's emphasis on breaking with conformity while today's renaissance is concerned with healing. All of this and much, much more. And now, without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Ken Jordan. So, Ken Jordan from Lucid News, founder, chief editor, how do you describe, what, what is your moniker? At Lucid? In life. In life. Okay. Well, at Lucid, I'm a co-founder uh-huh. and I'm the editorial director and the CEO. Nice. And in life? <laughs> father? Uh, definitely a father. Psychonaut? Yes. Psychonaut. You can tell, I mean, it, it, it's a fair description, though it's funny because I never think of myself that way, but yeah. I probably have a lot more psychedelic experience than most people. Yeah. But it doesn't, I, I. It doesn't define you. It's not how I like to be defined yeah for me psychedelics always been in the last 20 years part of a consciousness practice Mm -hmm. and meditation and yoga and that kind of thing and so i always thought of psychedelics as a subset of something that went deeper than just a quote-unquote you know 
drug experience. For me, it all blurs together, those kind of bigger, the bigger pieces, into something that does define my life more and kind of explains why I'm doing what I'm doing. Well, you, you described sort of a psychedelic experience as being part of a larger consciousness practice. And I, I thought that was an interesting uh, way of framing it. Often people say a spiritual practice or or a meditation practice, but you use the phrase consciousness practice. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to learn more about that. Okay. So for me, I did my first psychedelics when I was younger mm-hmm. and they, you know, mushrooms and LSD. Valuable experiences, deep personal inner explorations. They had a therapeutic component for me personally, though they weren't in a therapeutic context. Yeah. And they helped me work through certain challenging moments in my life where I, I felt like I was getting a house cleaning and a kind of refreshing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. All great, but not life-changing for me. Mm-hmm. Right? It was later, after I'd started to be more open to you know Buddhist meditation and and things that are in that sphere, doing yoga fairly regularly for at that point maybe ten years. Not advanced, terribly clumsy, mm-hmm. painful. My kind of yoga, <laughs> you know, just like kind of loser lo- yoga, if you know what I mean. But you know, oh, I, I did all it. too well. I know what you mean. But that was when I discovered for myself a relationship to ayahuasca and plant medicines mm. that was very different mm. than the psychedelic experiences I had had before. And they were different in the sense that I felt that they were a continuation of the yogic and meditative practices that I was somehow mm-hmm. coming into contact with. And that had changed the way I relate to my life and to my relationships in the world. And the important part for me was that they were opening up a connection to what I would maybe call the invisible. Mm-hmm. You know, you might call it spiritual. I don't think there's any great language for any of this, right? But it definitely enhanced my life in all kinds of beautiful and nuanced ways and shaped how I wanted to pay attention to, you know, to certain kinds of things that, frankly, when I was younger, really were off of my radar, right? And so for me, psychedelics were always seen within that frame. It was in the last few years since the Michael Pollan book came out, the psychedelic industry emerged. All of this research began to to really sort of hit the academic journals. That psychedelics in and of themselves really became front and center for many people. And we started Lucid News in response to that. Because by that point, me and my co-founders, who include Annie Harrison, and Faye Sacleridis and Marisa Sturtz had been in this world for quite a while and were concerned that there's a lot of money coming in, a lot of new energy coming in, and not necessarily a lot of depth of understanding. And we felt it was really important to create a a basic AP-style journalistic platform that just covers what's happening so that people could trust it, right, and understand and make sense of this experience, and we could essentially ask the kinds of questions that we felt were important to ask when you're covering stories in the psychedelic mm-hmm. world, which we, I think, have since seen that most the mainstream journalism generally were not yeah. covering that well. And then a lot of the other coverage that was out there was kind of spotty. A lot of the places are you know platforms for news, mm-hmm. quote unquote news about psychedelics, yeah. have conflicts of interest, yeah. they're selling stuff. Yeah. 
They don't tell you they're selling stuff. Yeah. And you can't necessarily trust what they're publishing. They don't do fact-checking. So uh, we felt it was important just to have that kind of grounded, old-school-style yeah. journalism about psychedelics. And I think that we've run enough stories that show that, that no one else is really doing that kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? It, at that level, consistently. And so we feel like we're making a contribution yeah. that's of some value. Oh, I, absolutely. You definitely are. Well, there's so many, quote-unquote, outlets now that are publishing media of any variety of, about this emerging field. And really, like when we first met and connected, like 2020, late 2020, early 2021, fucking crazy. Like those are really crazy times. And it was like free money and Canadian stock markets. It was unclear. Felt like cannabis 2.0. Anyway, it was, it was, it was wild time. So I, I appreciate having Lucid News in my information ecosystem for sure. Cool. Thank you. I mean, I got to say, it's still wild. Time. Yeah. True. <laughs> well said. This is, I don't see it changing very much in that regard yeah. over the last four years. I think it just keeps, you know, the, the type of craziness yeah. shifts. So here we're getting into the meat of it where I was excited to have you on the pod and, and talk about this. I should, we should flag that it's December 1st, 2023, just for kind of a timestamp. But we were texting back and forth as we were scheduling, like, it's crazy times. There's a lot to discuss. Really, the goal for this conversation was to have one of our catch-ups recorded and just share with our listeners about what we're making of the field. But give me the TLDR. What are the top bullet What's crazy? The field is in flux. What's, what's most salient for you right now in terms of the psychedelic renaissance, quote-unquote? Well, I got to say, I'm really curious to hear what you think, too, because mm -hmm. I'm like doing my best to gather. Yeah. I've stopped gathering. I don't gather anymore. I know. I, I got to gather. I can't gather. I, gathering <laughs> was driving me crazy. Like, if you notice, like, the, the newsletter had, has migrated from a news roundup to punctuated sort of essays on, like, just how, what, I, I couldn't do the gathering anymore. It was driving me fucking nuts. Well. And, and so I, period, I, I, I passively gather. I went from very active gathering to now I passively gather passively gather from from lucid and from the microdose and from psychedelic alpha but i could no longer actively gather and distribute it was it was it was weighing on me well it's a lot it's, it's, it's a, a real ton. lot but i got to say the kind of gathering that i'm trying to do now mm -hmm. for the most part has been let's say off the record conversations uh -huh. with people who are working professionally in the psychedelic space yep. or activists doing policy yeah. they're involved in the bc side you know the whole range mm -hmm. right and you know i talked to a good number of shamans and mushroom dealers. Right? Yeah. And so like, what's going on? Oh, right? you got the full spectrum. You got it. <laughs> the only way to understand this is yeah. to try to embrace as much as you can mm -hmm. in terms of the, the range of what's happening. Because yeah. it's all part of the same narrative. It's all story. Well it's said. The same story. And in June, 12,000 of us were in Denver. Yeah. In a conference center. And it felt like we were on a rocket ship. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh my God. How did this get so big so fast? And it seems normal, right? It didn't feel like Burning Man. Yeah. It didn't have that sense of like all of the 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 old world counterculture, mm -hmm. you know, kind of trappings that mm -hmm. you associate with quote unquote psychedelic yeah. stuff. 
it was pretty normal looking people. Yeah. A lot of white people, but mostly normal who were, you know, pretty affluent and looking kind of mainstream. Yeah. And all like really in the psychedelics. Yeah. And really excited by the way that it's entering the mainstream of the culture. You were surprised by the spectacle of it. I was surprised by how big it felt. Yeah. And the single comment I heard more than anything else from people during and after, and we actually did a survey on our newsletter, in the Lucid News newsletter, which uh -huh. confirmed this, was the one word we heard from everybody was overwhelming. <laughs> this is overwhelming. I can't take it all in. Yeah. You know, it was several days of five or six tracks at the same time. At the time. same time. Yeah, it was crazy. All these different, you might say, siloed areas of psychedelics yeah. coming together yeah. in the same space. Yeah. So you had people talking about shamanistic, you know, spiritual side to a certain extent. Yeah. There were a handful of people there associated with indigenous stuff, but then you had all these people involved with the VC side yeah. and the and the biotech side. Yeah. Researchers are there, you know, the policy people yeah. talking about different aspects and approaches to policy. Yada, yada, yada. I don't have it in front of me. But there was all these different, yeah. you know, tracks effectively. And so I heard it's overwhelming. This is too much for me to take in. Mm -hmm. Wow, I can't believe there's all. And, and you walk down the hallway and you run into 50,000 people that you know, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. who, if, for a lot of us, mm -hmm. right? And as, I mean, I'm not just talking about me. I, mean, like, I think yeah. many people who were there. Yeah. found themselves like running into the person who they met in the ceremony three yeah. years ago and they yeah. thought I'd never see again. And then suddenly yeah. they're sitting next to each other, yeah. you know, in a room at a talk. And it was like, wow, you know. The other thing we heard was they didn't give enough attention to this. Yeah. <laughs> X, fill in the blank. Fill in the right? blank. Yeah. And it was like, why weren't there more indigenous voices there? Why weren't there you know, people who were speaking skeptically yeah. about this issue or that issue mm -hmm. or talking about the harms, dangers that are also part of the psychedelic experience mm -hmm. and are real and need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. A whole lot of stuff like that. So I came away from Denver going, this thing is huge. It can't contain all of the different intentions and interests of the people who are now participating. Mm -hmm. So it's going to get even bigger right? Mm -hmm. And a real sense of enthusiasm and possibility, mm -hmm. right? I'm not the only guy who came away from Denver with that sense. I also was aware that the resources available in the space had been contracting yeah. for about a year yeah. in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And that people like Josh Hardman, who did the real analysis, because I didn't, but he did, looking at the balance sheets of the public companies mm -hmm. and sort of making estimates about some of the other companies that were not public, could see that they're all running out of money. Yeah. Not all. Yeah. There's a dozen, maybe, that are not, right? Maybe it's 20. But of the 200 companies That's that got That's crazy, funding, 200 companies that- 50 are listed on the Canadian Stock Exchange, yeah. right? And there are certainly many more that got- I mean, I, yeah. I think it's about 200, mostly biotech type, mm -hmm. you know, going for IP, but then also some that are doing infrastructure, mm -hmm. technology plays yeah. related to psychedelics in various ways that are running out of cash. Yeah. And a year ago, over a year ago, the word was, it's going to be challenging next year, but, you know, things will probably turn around. Yeah. Right? 
And you know, so so there'll be more of it. There's going to be more of an influx of cash coming. And this summer, that did not happen. Mm-hmm. The opposite happened. Yeah, the VCs were not able to really raise much more money, very little, relatively speaking. And I think that's the result of, as I understand it, you know, certainly the the fall of the crypto mm-hmm. market and the higher interest rates. Mm-hmm. And then what I was hearing informally from a lot of individuals who had been investing in these companies was that they were personally really dissuaded by looking at their portfolio, which had been wildly overvalued, yeah. you know, early in 2022 yeah. and 21, yeah. and seeing that the stocks are worth pennies on the dollar. Yeah. And they're going, I'm not putting more money into this space. And so far, what that's meant is not only that companies are having more trouble, Right, and there's a consolidation that's going on, mm-hmm. and like you know, Beckley Waves mm-hmm. picks up New Life, mm-hmm. right, for probably not a tremendous amount of money, relatively speaking, compared to the twenty-eight million dollars that had been invested into it to date. So there's opportunities yeah. for those who are in a position to do the consolidation, yeah. and every new quote-unquote industry goes through periods like this, yeah. and a lot of the early players don't make it. Right? That's not surprising, but what is interesting for psychedelics is that it has also had a kind of collateral damage effect where organizations which over the last three or four years have emerged to hold space in what you would call, say, a a healthy psychedelic ecosystem, harm reduction groups, advocacy organizations, groups that are working to professionalize Mm -hmm. psychedelic therapy, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. are finding themselves in a more challenging position raising money. Yeah. And there isn't a lot of awareness about this yet in the quote-unquote field because it's very recent. It was actually quite surprising coming out of Denver. Right. And, and, and you know, from a Lucid News perspective, right, as a journalist, I haven't written about this yet in part because, honestly, it's very hard to find anybody who wants to go on the record saying this. Yeah, yeah. So I only can, you know, generalize. Right. Right? Because... You know, they're all in conversations with potential investors or funders who they don't want to scare away. Yeah, yeah. Okay? So what has happened as a result is a kind of confusing contraction that's Mm -hmm. happening across the board Mm -hmm. at the same moment that more people are probably doing psychedelics than ever in history. Right, yeah. Right? Yeah. That the policy stuff seems to be moving still in the right direction. yeah. In the sense of moving to, I mean, depending on how you really feel about it, but, you know, certainly more towards openness, yeah. whether it's decrim or potential legal frameworks. Mm-hmm. And there's a general growing interest and acceptance by the public, yeah. broadly speaking, yeah. in psychedelics as a therapeutic yeah. tool, and the taboo continues to lift. Yeah. Right? And I say that as someone who's been watching the taboo lift for 10 years. It's yeah. like, comparatively speaking, the taboo was really heavy up till, for me, about 2013. And then over the last 10 years, you could really feel it continually dissipating yeah. to the point where Elon Musk yeah. can talk openly, continually about his psychedelic use. Yeah. And people have gotten to the point where they don't think that the psychedelics are the problem. Right, right, right. With Elon. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, a, that was a really good synopsis of 
the state of play. And I mean, I'm glad you, the, the last thing you mentioned is like this contraction of the, of the psychedelic field writ large is happening at a time when psychedelics are more accepted than they ever have been before. There's probably more people that are using them before. What is like the, I, I don't like to use the word underground, but like, what is the mycelium underneath all of this look like? Well, I'll tell you. you yeah. You mentioned talking to shamans the the irony of this is like it's it's got to be exploding right and there is an an industry that is supporting people in a way that is just not like normal industries right well i mean what it is it's is it's you know it's a gray market totally that is like the cannabis industry yeah right so in but that it's, way but it's it, it is like the cannabis industry Except there's like really a service-oriented nature, whether it's trip-sitting or guiding or ceremony facilitation. Like there is the pomp and circumstance of all of that that I feel I never experienced in cannabis. Totally. I conflated two things, right? One is, you know, where's the money? The money right now is very much in a really active gray market. Yeah that's making chocolates that you can buy in every cannabis bodega in New York City. Isn't that crazy? It's outrageous. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. So, and those guys are doing well. They're crushing. They're crushing. (laughs) Uh, And that ain't going away. Right now. That's not going away. There's no enforcement. Yeah. Right? There's no enforcement because, frankly, I think the tone, well, first of all, you're not seeing a rush of people going to the hospital in the emergency rooms mm-hmm. because of psychedelics, mm-hmm. right? Not that anybody's doing a serious analysis of this. Yeah. It would be good for it someone good to, to do that, that yeah. right? Uh, considering just how much greater psychedelic use is right now, probably, than it has been previously, to have a meaningful analysis, you know, what kind of effect that's had on the health system yeah. would be valuable. That would be a useful thing to have. We don't have it. But anecdotally, I'm not hearing it. No one I know is hearing it. I know Greg Ferenstein is trying to look into it in Colorado. I wrote a story about him uh-huh. and his first analysis, Colorado. A few months said, ago, right? A few months ago. Yeah. It was probably like spring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. And the impact was was nil. Yeah. In fact, you know, he's like, there's no there's sign no, at there's all. There's no signal of there's no distress. Signal. Right. And I think that's an important thing to acknowledge, mm-hmm. right? When people say, oh, these substances need to go through clinical trials in order for us to know how safe they are. Yeah. Well, you know, if the usage has doubled or tripled yeah. and there's no comparative doubling or tripling of emergency room yeah. visits, that tells you something. Not that, you know, I, I, that's what I would expect. I yeah. mean, I'd love, love to get real data. And then, you know, if I'm wrong, you know, you change your views accordingly, right? Totally. But that seems to be what's going on at the moment. But in parallel, something else is also going on, which is what you're alluding to, is that over the last few years, a kind of community ecosystem in psychedelics has emerged, right? That includes groups who are helping people who are becoming guides or facilitators Mm -hmm. informally, right? There's an informal kind of ceremonial underground, for sure, I think. It's probably really splintered. It's not that well organized at all. A lot of people have to maintain their their you know underground status 
you know, frankly, because of all kinds of legal issues. But there's certainly a lot more of this happening than yeah. five years ago. And the people who are running the spaces know this, like they're tracking this, you know, because they can see how many requests they're getting for the use of their space. And for me, what I find really encouraging is the quality of the people who are coming into this space to hold these various, say, nodal points in the network, to do intelligent harm reduction, mm -hmm. to do better education, yeah. to you know, focus on access and insurance in yeah. this space. And there's real you know, professional people who are working very hard on this yeah. in order to make sure that as best we can under the circumstances that psychedelic therapy, when it comes online in whatever form it does, is available to the people who can't afford it the way that other people can, yeah. you know, people who are from marginalized communities and you know, have economic restrictions of various kinds. So it's really inspiring to see this. And I feel like what's happened over the last few years, you would go to a conference that was particularly oriented around VC investment, mm -hmm. and you could tell who's there, you know, for the big payoff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And who's there because they feel they're part of something that could really have a transformational yeah. impact for society. And that over the last few years, that network has really gotten deeper and richer, yeah. right? Which is also why I think the sense of constraint around resources is meaningful because it's inspiring to see who's been showing up to hold this space mm -hmm. in this way in a very public good oriented yeah. approach that has really had an impact, you know, on many, many thousands of lives already. But there hasn't, you know, it's not like Rockefeller and Ford Foundation yeah. are writing, you know, grants for these folks, right? And that's, and they're, they're basically not-for-profit public yeah. good organizations, yeah. right? I think that's a concern. With regards to that idea of funding, you know, from philanthropic or foundational support, I mean, as, as far as I understand, we've had like the very preliminary NIH funding for, for research. Like I think one study at, at Hopkins and maybe there's like a, there's now an avenue of submitting for grants that from what I can gather from Twitter seems very cumbersome. And, and then your point about foundation funding for education, support, harm reduction, et cetera. When does that happen? Oh, yeah. You're, I'm now going to look in my crystal ball. I want you to look into your crystal ball. <laughs> yeah, but it's like, you know, there's been, NIDA has been, you know, the National Institute of Drug Abuse has funded basic science in psychedelics since the 70s, right? And, and ostensibly with like the purpose of showing their harms, frankly, right? And so that's been basically the only government funding that, that has been around. There's been a few grants that have, but like, with the amount of use, with the amount of promising research, you know, despite early days, something like this should be more fundable, one would think, right? Like, do you have a sense of how it compares? I mean, I guess cannabis is a completely different thing, but how do you take that? Is that an emerging, we're going to see NIH funds anytime soon or I, mean, I don't see it happening anytime soon love to be surprised I keep getting surprised right you know I've been having conversations with former three-star generals mm -hmm. who are now some of the major psychedelic advocates in Washington never saw that coming I'll tell you and you know they care these are people who care 
One of the things that's really interesting to me about this current psychedelic moment is the reverberating impact of the 60s counterculture and how the use of psychedelics at that time has essentially set the table for this moment. Because, among other things, so many people have been doing psychedelics over the years. And this, you know, this goes back 60 years in any meaningful way, you know, in terms of like, you know, mass adoption, mass use. So you have generations of people who have, frankly, you know, you might call real jobs. Yeah. Who have psychedelic experience, yeah. right? In the government, in industry, in the medical regulation field, in the FDA, mm -hmm. right? It's not like nobody at the top of the FDA has ever done psychedelics, okay? So that's a very different situation than it was in 1960. Interesting point, well said. Okay. Yeah. And the more real experience people have had with psychedelics, the less scared they are, mm -hmm. right? So that's created an opportunity, I think. That's really now how things are happening, right? And, you know, one day when Rick Doblin writes the memoir that everybody is, would love for him to write, but he can't at the moment because he's got too much at stake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to hear all kinds of stories yeah. that 30 years from now yeah. about who and where and how he yeah. had meetings with people who never thought were going to get it, quote unquote, get it, who did. Yeah. And they were like, shh, don't tell anybody. Bum, 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 bum. And I'm not just saying, I mean, I'm actually not trying to, you know, give a preview of Rick's memoir. It's yeah. not like I know yeah, exactly yeah. those stories from him, but I'm hearing that from so many people in this field. This is endemic, right? And I think without having those types of people in positions of authority who are making or helping to finesse decisions, the psychedelic renaissance that we're now experiencing doesn't happen mm -hmm. because there's too much fear. I That's find an that optimistic. That's an optimistic view. It's striking me as an optimistic view. Well, why? I'm curious. Why? Well, I think I'm comparing it to a baseline that I have that is less optimistic. And and maybe I'll share. I'm not saying that this necessarily is gonna like is gonna lead to the the nirvana we all would love to see. Yeah. But I'm saying one reason why things have moved the way they have so mm. far. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. Because of that. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I yeah. don't think at all that this is a guarantee of future success. Yeah. Yeah. Just to say. But I'm curious. So what do you? What? How well, are you seeing it? Well, I I think you're right. There's like a cultural uptake, in the sense that more people are using psychedelics than they probably ever have before. It's not entirely, you know, of, of, let's say, the parents at my kids' schools or people that I meet. You know, I live up in Maine, and so, like, I, some people look at me like I'm crazy when I tell them what I do, and other people are like, oh, that's great. You know what I mean? Like, it's, so it's not, so there's, there's an adoption of, of a normalization, maybe, let's, let's say, and, and obviously the work on maps and Michael Pollan's book has contributed to that, et cetera. But like, I kind of feel like it's coming to, this is, you know, a few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago now, Gavin Newsom vetoed ostensibly a decriminalization bill in the state of California, right? And uh, it's funny, like I had an essay all ready to go predicting that he's not going to, that he's going to veto it. And then I got sick and so I had to, I, I didn't publish it right away. And then he vetoed it and I was like, God, I missed my opportunity to like predict the 
whatever. But it it strikes me as like the revolution will be medicalized. Like the establishment, quote unquote, I don't think will stand for state legalization at the scale that we saw for cannabis. So what does that actually mean to you? What does medicalization mean to you? Medicalization means to me a organization like a MAPS or a Compass Pathways finds the money and the resources to take a compound through the FDA approval process so that doctors can write a prescription for it. I think the confusing thing about this is that we had a, a, a sort of a term of medical cannabis, and I think that version of it in psychedelics could better well be called like wellness or something like that. Like the organ model, for example, doesn't use the term therapy, or at least I would say maybe they they're not supposed to or something they, like they that. They actually are are prohibited. They're prohibited from using, from using, the, using word the word therapy, therapy, right? So supported adult use. So so going so going back to cannabis, so we had like. Medical marijuana was like this kind of precursor to a a retail model that, you know, ostensibly, if you think about, I think it was called Prop Two Fifteen in like nineteen ninety six. That, I mean, was 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 for patients who were dying of HIV and AIDS. I mean, how can that not be a medical thing? But what it turned into was a model outside of what I mean by like you know. FDA approved medicine or, or something like that, right? It was like a, yeah. a a side car kind of thing. So I think with psychedelics, because of like a weird quirk of history where it was easier to do research with LSD and synthetic, you know, psilocybin than it was for cannabis, like the science of psychedelics is so much far ahead of the science of cannabis. Cannabis industry and culture is so far ahead of the psychedelic, right? So what am I trying to say? So what I mean by medical is like, I think that there's an acknowledgement, there is a strong voice of the veteran community that, that's lobbying at on, on, on Capitol Hill and in Senate and Congress for the VA that will funnel psychedelic research and access through a medical model that is within the bounds of the normal, of the healthcare system, let's say, right? And this is informed by just like the last four years of watching the world and how COVID and politics and whatever, as it just feels like the, the powers that be are increasingly having tighter and tighter grip on the way they want things to be. Well, so my question is, let's say that MDMA and psilocybin both go through the approval process yeah. from the FDA and you end up with potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of patients who are within the medical model having access to those substances as medicines within that specific kind of therapeutic framing Mm -hmm. and maybe off-label use as well within the medical model. What impact do you think that has on underground use? I think it skyrockets. Right. Yeah. So what control are you talking about? Like actual changing of drug laws. Right. Well, so this is the question. And enforcement of those laws. So this is the question that I have. Once that sanctioned use happens through the medical system, and the ripple effect is that there's more and more underground use, Mm -hmm. with let's say 85% to 90% response to the underground use being very positive. Mm 
Do you not think that has any impact on the political conversation? I, I, I think it becomes a threat to the ability for pharmaceutical companies to make money. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, but they may also, it may do two things. It, it might be a threat to pharmaceutical companies making money, or it might be that pharmaceutical companies come to the realization that they're going to have patients within the medical system no matter what, mm -hmm. and that millions of people, many, many millions of people doing psychedelics outside the, yeah. of the medical model doesn't affect ultimately their bottom line that much. Mm -hmm. They may realize that they're doing pretty well yeah. no matter what. Totally. The, the upshot is that it's very difficult once you have that much social acceptance mm -hmm. and use mm -hmm. for it not to somehow show up mm -hmm. in social policy, right? Yeah. And I'm not saying that I, I know or any of us know what that means, yeah. right? We do know that you've got Oregon and Colorado. Yeah. You know, things are happening in other states. Yeah. Lots of cities already, right? They're not taking it away from Seattle or from DC yeah. or from Detroit, right? Where there's you know sanctioned use and various yeah, yeah. effectively, yeah. right? Yeah. I look at it as I look at the long the long play, right? Where would this end up in five or ten years? Yeah. When you have legal sanctioned use where more and more people, because of their experience, are understanding mm -hmm. what this really means. And from my perspective, what it could mean, the, the medical use yeah. could mean, is that for people who have serious mental wellness issues, yeah. mental health issues, yeah. that there is this opportunity available to them, yeah. which I think, frankly, makes total sense. Mm -hmm. That is to say, somebody who's got serious PTSD, who's recovering from sexual abuse, mm -hmm. who's recovering from, from war, you know, trauma, really could use a meaningful therapeutic support from yeah. somebody who's a pro who knows yeah. how to handle that. Yeah. I have, let's just say, enough experience participating in plant medicine work, right, yeah. in various ways, to know from my own experience that when somebody shows up who's got that kind of personal damage, it's very challenging oh, to sometimes handle what happens totally. for them in a ceremony or afterwards. Totally. And that having real, grounded, knowledgeable, yeah. professional support um, from people who are effectively doctors, right, is hugely important and can make all the difference for them between having like a momentary, wow, breakthrough, beautiful moment or real crisis moment, and then what that leads to in terms of long-term healing, okay? Long-term healing can happen without it, yeah. without the therapy. And believe me, we know many people who have, right? And those are the people who are t generally testifying in these situations, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. In Congress or in, you know, whatever, in policy discussions. But there's real value in having a medical frame of some kind if yeah. it's done right, totally. okay? but. I just don't see how that doesn't stop a whole lot of other stuff from mm -hmm. happening, mm -hmm. which from my perspective, I think this is where we really want to focus on building the right kind of community support ecosystem. Yeah. Because the thing that could derail all of this more than anything else right now, from what I can see, are more stories like the pilot yeah. who had a mushroom experience and then you know, a few days later, 
wasn't handling it well yeah. and did something really public and stupid yeah. and painful. And I'm sorry that he went through it and it's yeah. a terrible thing that he had to experience it. And frankly, it's very hard to prevent that. Yeah. And there's going to be more of that. Yeah. No matter what, there's going to be more of that. Totally. So those stories, which frankly get more press than anything else, yeah. you know, other than say Aaron Rodgers, mm-hmm. right? Alongside Aaron Rodgers. Yeah. These are the stories. This is what, this is what the mainstream media does when yeah. it covers psychedelics, yeah. right? Horror stories or like or celebrity. Right, exactly. Like, oh man, you know, most valuable player took ayahuasca. Yeah, oh yeah. my God. And then he says goofy things. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. So when you have stories like this that are circulating that are potentially really damaging, they most affect the folks who have the least exposure to psychedelics themselves yeah. in positions of power. Well said. And it's those folks who are the quiet backroom decision makers who could slow all of this down yeah. by saying, you know, man, I read that story about that guy and this stuff's really dangerous. And I've, you know, all that drug war propaganda really resonated for me when I was a kid. Yeah. And I like my SSRIs. They work for me. What do these people want to do? Taking people off of SSRIs. They're crazy. And they start to do paperwork effectively that, that can kind of kill the whole thing. See, that's what I think is like, I, 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 I think that that is the thing that I'm most pessimistic about is like the force of that person sitting in Washington in some federal building and their ability to like cut out what, what might be happening at a state level or for example. So like the model in my mind is like, how does the control substances act happen again? If the control substances act is already in, cause I, I tend to th- agree with like Terrence McKenna when he says like the reason why power doesn't like psychedelics is because it gives the population the ability to see that the emperor has no clothes or you know something to that effect right like there is a there there is something destabilizing about let's call it the psychedelic perspective that centralized sort of authority deems as a as a threat right so the thing that comes to mind and i'm going into the weeds here i don't know but like the ability for the government to surveil and to understand what's happening, you know, in England right now or in the UK, there is a legislation that is basically, if I understand it correctly, would unencrypt something like Signal. It would mandate that a company like Signal or WhatsApp, which is owned by Meta, Facebook, if it, it would mandate that they have to unencrypt their messaging. So as it pertains to like the underground or sort of this sort of gray ecosystem that is growing and forming, that's built on some combination of encrypted messaging, just peer-to-peer local understanding or, or relationships, and kind of like a, a blind eye from the powers that be, right? Like, does that make sense? Like that that analysis, kinda right. And, I mean, and here, I mean, like, to, like, to your point about the yeah. bodegas, right? Like the police are not walking into the bodegas and like shutting them down because they have psilocybin chocolates. 
Right, which they would have done 10 years ago. Okay, so from my perspective, mm. watching this for a long period of time, yeah. what I'm seeing is a real loosening of concern yeah. by authority around psychedelics. And I don't so far see that trend reversing. I hope you're right. Well, I'm just seeing what's I'm just watching yeah, and paying yeah. attention. When the first efforts to decriminalize and in some ways legalize psychedelics began to happen in 2019 in Denver mm-hmm. and then you know took off in other places mm-hmm. around the country. I fully expected there to be opposition. Hmm. I expected for there to be organized, mm-hmm. you know, forces spending money to defeat those ballot initiatives or to lobby oh, against them mm-hmm. in legislative decision-making processes. Mm. And you know what? It didn't happen. happen. Now, does that mean it's not going to happen? I don't know. But it hasn't happened yet, right? To me, that's a real interesting signal of what's going on, right? Yeah. Could happen tomorrow. So, you know, that's why we got to watch it carefully. Yeah. But I come back to seeing the medicalization effort as having a really interesting kind of ripple effect out. Mm where people who would have been organized and concerned are looking at all of the research and are looking at uh, the constituencies that are supporting mm-hmm. the legalization efforts by the FDA, yeah, right? Which means basically the vets. And they're going, you know, I'm, maybe this isn't for me, but I'm not too worried about yeah. it. What you're suggesting is the old, Allen Ginsberg, Tim Leary approach to psychedelics, which is when you take the psychedelic, it's going to turn you into an enemy of the state. (laughs) Okay. All right. Which was a great thing. And they wanted that. Okay. Now, and I I speak, I mean, okay. So we didn't talk about about my history. Allen Ginsberg was my mentor. Oh, wow. I, I knew him very, very well. No way. Oh, yeah. Oh, now, wow. My dad published him in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. I lived in his apartment in the 90s. No way. Oh, yeah. No, I, I learned a lot from Allen Ginsberg. The current psychedelic moment is nothing like what he would have envisioned at the time, back in those days. And I think that's in part because of the successes of that 60s counterculture movement, which we frankly today have a very difficult time identifying and you know, saying, oh man, that really, that happened, right? In that era, psychedelics were used broadly. Like the reason that Leary wanted psychedelics to essentially jump the lab, right? Was because the lab was controlled by the CIA. That's how they saw it effectively, right? That it was the forces in the country that were in favor of the Vietnam War, that were in favor of segregation, that were against the civil rights movement, that were controlling the use of the substance, the CIA's, you know, MKUltra yeah. efforts. They didn't know much about that necessarily in great detail, but they, they knew enough to know that this is weird. Being in that environment was a lousy set and setting, mm-hmm. okay? And that the potential for, let's say, healthy normals, mm-hmm. right, was massive at that moment because they were living in a time of tremendous conformity. Yeah. And yeah. a real sense that 
at the same time that there was an emerging underground movement yeah. that was in opposition to that conformity, yeah. and that psychedelics could be catalytic in sharing the vision of that movement. Yeah. And so Ginsburg and Leary together came up with this whole strategy about dosing as many people as possible uh -huh. in order to catalyze social change. And it worked, by the way. Yeah. They got the radical 60s counterculture thing to go global. Mm -hmm. Bob Dylan and the Beatles embraced it. Sergeant Pepper came out in yeah. 1967. LSD was on the cover of every magazine in the world as part of a social movement to change society. Yeah. Right? And that inspired the conservative response, yeah. which was not only Republican, a lot of Democrats too were really freaked out by yeah. this. Yeah. So it began in the Johnson administration, finalized by the Nixon administration yeah. in 1970 with the Controlled Substances Act and all of that. We live in a totally different world totally. today. Yeah. In those days, those guys never talked about psychedelics and healing yeah. in the same sentence. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. Psychedelics were subversive. Yeah. Psychedelics were meant to blow your mind and essentially turn you on to a totally different wavelength so that you reject the world in which you have found yourself born into. The ripple effects of that have now been thoroughly absorbed by our society. Yeah. And it's led to essentially what I would call mainstream blue state culture. Yeah. Today, people talk about psychedelics through this lens of, uh, of healing, yeah. that it opened up my heart, that it helped me to work through deep issues, traumas that I had not been able to face before. That's in the therapeutic context, mm -hmm. but it's not only in the therapeutic context, it's also in the ceremonial context, mm -hmm. right? And that is totally different than the way people thought about psychedelics 50 years ago. Yeah. I find that really encouraging. Yeah. And it's that healing aspect of it that I think is, it's actually, that's the avenue towards the mainstream yeah. acceptance. And the way that the psychedelic ecosystem that's emerged over the last few years has been shaped is in response to that impulse towards healing, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Harm reduction is mm -hmm. a big part of that as are the advocacy groups working with vets or LGBTQ communities mm -hmm. or you know, other marginalized communities you know, using psychedelics in order to go through their healing processes, right? And then the way that the shamanic culture is emerging. Which was not a feature of the, of the 60s. At all. At all. At all. Yeah. No. It's interesting because today there's a lot of talk about how we have to recognize the importance of the indigenous practices. Mm -hmm and that we have no real Western history of mm -hmm. using psychedelics. Totally untrue, mm -hmm. by the way, mm -hmm. because over these last 75 years, more or less, if you yeah. go back to the use of masculine in the early 50s, yeah. a real Western tradition yeah. of using psychedelics did emerge, not only in the medicalized underground, yeah. among therapists who were working with these substances and created all kinds of interesting practices that are very, frankly, they, they, those are the, the underground therapists the last 30 years are yeah. the ones who should be doing the teaching for all of the therapists who are now coming online to work in the medical frame. Yeah. Some of them are, but many of them are being ignored, and that's a shame. Yeah. But you also have these new kinds of shamanic framings yeah. that are incorporating aspects of indigenous use probably less than what a lot of 
northern white European descent folks from the states would like to think yeah. are yeah. real indigenous traditions. But definitely, as you go through that shamanic kind of practice, the initial ceremonies, especially for people who are just getting into the beginning of maybe a longer relationship to plant medicines, are healing focused. Yeah, you're right. I I just want to highlight that you were like a tornado of optimism and hope that has really reset my priors. I'm dead serious. Like I, 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 I spend too much time online and I think I have developed this theory of like how this comes to an end and I've bought into my own sort of conspiracy theory kind of thinking and just the fr- the way that you framed that, I, I have to say thank you and I appreciate because it was a, just in the last five minutes, a major update to my worldview on account of just like the nature of the difference of the environment that we're in today compared to the late 60s and early 70s, right? Like just the rigidity and the, the uniformity of society then compared to today is like radically different. And if psychedelics were coming up as a, a force of like a bludgeon to that uniformity, that's not the case today. I mean, there's no question. I think we all know people who have had psychedelic experiences and they had a really nice corporate job. We don't all know them. Yeah, I yeah, certainly know certain yeah. people like that. Few of us know people like that who then after that experience went, oh my God, I got to get out of this right, thing. Right. I'm going to change my life and yeah. do this other thing that's much more, you know, whatever. Yeah. Community focused. Totally. Or, you know, public service oriented. Dog walker. Dog walker. I'm going to become a dog walker. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I know a guy that, that happened to us. There you go. That's definitely part of what's going on. But I'll tell you, there's way more corporate folks who are yeah. taking psychedelics who are staying in their jobs. Totally, totally. Them, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. So in kind of starting to wrap this up, big things that are, I, I sort of, as, as I see them, and I'm curious in your take, right? We have maps that has sort of, either they have submitted their NDA or they're on the cusp to, but they're meant to have MDMA-assisted therapy you know, a decision from the FDA within the next year, right? Like that's, that's my understanding. That's yeah. huge. Yeah. Oregon is, has a regulated model that's been in place for almost a year now or a little bit less. Colorado's coming next. I, I, was at a, I was on a meeting last week. There's a grassroots movement in Maine that is trying to do a regulated access and decrim model. Massachusetts, I think, is, a, is the next state that has a big kind of emphasis on it. Um, what, where are we going? What does this look like? What does the future hold, Ken? Oh, good God. <laughs> I mean, this is, we're actually in a very interesting and uncertain moment. I feel that there's definitely a wave of positive opportunity coming our way. But like I said, it's going to depend ultimately on, on where the public level of education is really around psychedelics. How much do people really know? I feel it's essential in this next phase to make sure to support those psychedelic ecosystem organizations that have emerged over these last four years so that they're here a year or two from now. Because there's no guarantee they're going to stick around. I also feel strongly that without 
a more concerted effort around public education, that the kind of lingering ignorance that's within the policymaking establishment, to use a old-fashioned word, could derail the whole thing. But it's less likely to happen if you have engaged, informed, educated community on the national level, but also on a local level. Because the same thing that's happening on a national level is going to be happening in every town. It's going to be happening, yeah. you know, in Portland, Maine, right? And where's the group that can hold that space? What resources do they have, right? People watch the Netflix show, the How to Change Your Mind series, and they come away and you know, find somebody who has some mushrooms, mm -hmm. you know, and they, somebody has an, ex, has an experience. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a bad experience. It could be a fantastic experience, but they're still going to go afterwards, who do I talk to yeah. about this? Can somebody help me with this? Right? That integration network doesn't exist now. I'm concerned about that. I am very concerned that there's going to be a sense among people who who see that we've come this far and feel that on some level, well, this is all kind of inevitable, that the medicalization thing is going to happen, and then it's all going to kind of just sort of flow from that, because these are just drugs or medications like any other, ultimately, and it's going to take care of itself. I really don't believe that's true. I think it requires significant, determined, focused effort to create a healthy, thriving community support network ecosystem that can hold the space for this. And I feel honestly that Lucid News and the kind of journalism we do and our website, Psychedelic U, which we didn't talk about, but you know, we, we have a beta of it up now. We'd yeah. love to expand it and really get it going f properly. That's essentially like a Wikipedia by experts about psychedelics. Yeah. And it's meant to provide a platform for anybody who's Googling or searching or trying to find out more about psychedelics that they can actually go to to get grounded, yeah. vetted information, yeah. and then links out to resources that they can trust, yeah. right? That are, don't have conflicts of interest associated with them that are somehow really clearly yeah. like, yeah, this is going to be informative and helpful to you. When somebody is new to this space, and they go online and they want to learn something about psychedelics. When they Google, they end up with a potpourri of all yeah. kinds of stuff. And that's not just true for somebody who might use the psychedelics, but it's also true for the policymakers, for the doctors, yeah. for yeah. the law enforcement people. Yeah. And that cacophony of bad information is contributing to the chaos of this process. I'm convinced of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's essential that there be something like what we're trying to do with Psychedelic U. We got it to the beta stage. Mm -hmm. We need to keep moving with it. We don't have the resources to do it right now. Mm -hmm. Say a little bit more about that. That's resources for the science, for for personal use, for finding a therapy. Like, well, the, the Psychedelic U, which yeah. is you can find it psychedelicu letter u yeah. dot net, is a website that that contains all of that kind of information. Mm -hmm. Right now, for four substances, LSD, MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. But you know, we intend to expand it. Yeah. That's the idea. There's about 70 pages on there now, so you get a oh, feel wow. for what we're trying to do. But yeah. it's still very small compared to what it could be or should be. But the idea is to present not only, say, the medical side and the chemical side mm -hmm. and the harm reduction 
stuff you need to know, but also the cultural background, mm-hmm. spiritual side, how people use them, the legal issues involved, yeah. everything intertwined so you can move from one bit of information to the next to the next and yeah. you see how this is all part of the same conversation, yeah. right? So you yeah. don't go to only like to a website that's say about the use of you know MDMA to treat PTSD right, and right. you're just reading about the medical side. You're just reading also about how MDMA is used yeah. in other cultural contexts yeah. and the history and the, the legal implications, sure. which you know is not necessarily on the Johns Hopkins website, yeah. right? Yeah. So we feel that seeing psychedelics through that much more holistic lens is critical. Yeah just as a basic starting point for education, yep. right? And like I said, we include links out to the best resources online for information to go deeper. Yeah, I agree. I, I've felt like the education layer of the quote-unquote psychedelic renaissance is like the most important thing to have in place. And, and, it, and it is, that's never going to be a centralized thing, right? You know what I mean? It's like psychedelic you or Chakruna or double blind, like, People will be attracted to different sort of well. I just avenues just to say, Chakruna is a partner, yeah. And the one of the, the lead writer editor on Psychedelic U is Madison Margolin, oh, who is the co-founder go. of Double yeah. Blind. We link out to a lot of Double Blind articles, but you know, we're, we're basically we're working with the best people Sweet. we can in this space, and to provide an opportunity for everybody's yeah boat to float higher. So that's PsychedelicU.net. Yeah, and. People can find Lucid News at lucid.news. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Ken, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Man, thank you. This was great. This was fun. Let's say round two when MDMA is approved by the FDA. You're on. (laughs) Thanks for listening to The Trip Report. We hope you enjoyed it. You can sign up to receive our free newsletter and get the podcast sent directly to your inbox by going to thetripreport.com. This podcast is a production from Beckley Waves, a psychedelic venture studio. If you're interested in learning more about building companies in the psychedelic space, head over to beckleywaves.com to get in touch. If you like this episode, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share it with your friends. I'm Zach Hegney. The Trip Report is produced by Cooler Production Company, with coordination from Caitlin Jabari. See you next time. Cool. How was that? That was awesome. Was that fun? That was a lot of fun. Thank you.